Namaste, I'm Simone. I'm Satashma and welcome back to Antipause. Thank you for the support and love you showed to our last episode. And today we're back here again, bringing you the second episode, Disappearing Pause. We want to start this episode with an introduction of what a mass extinction is. A mass extinction is usually defined as a loss of about three quarters of all species in existence across the entire Earth over a short geological period of time. Given the vast amount of time since life first evolved on the planet, short is defined as anything less than 2.8 million years. We are currently in the sixth extinction. Um, the sixth extinction, which is called the Holocene extinction, has already cost the world thousands of species due to human activities. Although this has been going on for 10,000 years, the rate of this mass extinction has been increasing at an alarming rate. This year has seen hundreds of thousands of people lose their lives to coronavirus. But in the animal world, full-blown extinctions continue to stalk various species. According to the World Wildlife Fund, WWF, animal populations have declined by an average of almost 70% in less than 50 years. As ecosystems break down and animals struggle to cope in rapidly changing world, climate change, human actions, a loss of habitat, and other factors have combined to leave many animals facing a bleak future and some facing none at all. From World Wildlife itself today, Dr. Kanasham Gurung, who is the appointed country representative of WWF Nepal, will be joining us. Dr. Kanasham Gurung was born in a family of herders in the Upper Mustang district of Nepal. As a country representative, Dr. Gurung has successfully provided strategic direction to the organization, raised funds for projects in Nepal, and ensured conservation successes that contribute to WWF's global mission to stop the degradation of the planet's natural environment and build a future in which people live in harmony with nature. He has about 30 years of experience in species and people-centered natural resource management, ecotourism development, linking conservation with faith groups, policy engagement, and project negotiations. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gurung. We're starting this episode by taking a little trip back to your hometown, the Mustang District. Mustang District in Nepal covers an area of 3,573 kilometers square and has a population of 13,452. Facing harsh weather conditions, people depend on domesticated animals for various resources. In this region, in the past, Snow leopards have always been viewed as a threat to people's livelihoods, especially in Upper Mustang. You spent most of your childhood here, years accompanying your family in herding. As a herder, you must have also felt threatened by snow leopards. I must ask you, how did a herder's son grow up to become a conservationist? This is the most beautiful part of my story. A little boy uh, born in a herder community and he studies a Buddhism in a little cave, age of five. He start herding little goats and sheep and in the later part of the age as yaks. And then suddenly the snow leopard attacks uh, my livestock. And most of the time I had times that it killed nearly one or one or two. One time it killed 12 of them. And I really needed, I cried with my little brother because the snow leopard was not going away. It's really important that uh, when you talk about snow leopard uh, killing your livestock, and uh, it's uh, for the herder community in the mountains, uh, the livestock is cash in the bank. And you sell uh, during the sign and other place uh, times, and that's the money you get up to buy things from the town. And that's only cash. 
and if cash is being robbed by something else, of course you're going to get very upset and angry. And more importantly, as a young boy, I really felt a really, really tough time with the little uh, goat I had to raise with my little hand, feeding them even uh, milk from my mouth. And then they get a little bit bigger and then get killed by a snow leopard. And so emotionally draining. So, and that's the, the continued journey. But, but then we always lived with a life that with the snow leopard and, and the wolf and all of that. And we were always taught <clears throat> we have to look after snow leopards as the deities of the mountains. We call it God's pit. Uh, or uh, in the West, it's called ghost of the mountains. But we call it not a ghost. It is the deity of our, our local. So if you do something bad to the snow leopard, and you're going to get really, really angry, and you will kill more. So that's kind of an understanding. So it's a very coexistence was there. But uh, as, when, as, a, as soon as I went to New Zealand to study, with a uh, blessing from Sir Edmund Hillary and Mingwa um, Norbu Sherpa, and I found out the snow leopard so rare, so elusive, and you can't find any many places. It's so endangered. And I was really shocked, you know? I was really shocked. Snow leopards are everywhere in my village. They were following my, my livestock. And suddenly I get to know they are so rare, so I mean, elusive. And now it's really immediately that my compassion towards the snow leopard jumped up. And then I was doing a conservation of biology and a property area management and all of that. And suddenly I thought, now my time has come to protect this species uh, and the mountain, which is health, which indicator of the health of the ecosystem of the mountains, and it has got so much linked to mountain people's culture and living together in harmony with nature. And times we have to fight, times we have to live, and most of the time because we coexisted, that's why thousands of years the snow leopard healthily left, lived in the mountains, and mountain people never eliminated it. And that's why I become a more of a snow leopard advocate, and now I'm globally known as the snow leopard champion for the global WWF network. And I think becoming a herder, becoming a conservationist, and finally become a global conservation champions, and getting nicknamed as a shepherd of a snow leopard in the local Nepali. It's a kind of a, uh, for me, it's a satisfying, self-satisfying, and that's the journey how it began. That's really amazing. So now moving on to another important member of the cat family, we wanted to talk a little about the T times two or Tiger times two goal set by WWF, which is the which is like the goal to double the number of wild tigers by 22. Um, so with constant dedicated conservation efforts, Nepal was able to increase the number of tigers from 121 in 2009 to 235 in 2018. So with 2022 just around the corner, how has the progress been in Nepal? The progress in Nepal for tiger conservation has been great uh, uh, because tiger numbers uh, from 2010 onwards, it's increasing. And you have said already, midway through, it's uh, 235. Now we have to bring the numbers to 250 to double the numbers. And I think it's a, it's a, we think we're going to do it. Uh, in the recent uh, years, particularly during the COVID, the tigers are climbing all the way up. Uh, to 2,500 meters in the west. It's, it's a former home range. There were tigers in that much higher up earlier. Uh, and then tigers also climbing in the eastern Nepal is almost 3,500 meters up. So it's a, these are former home range. And that means it's a, they're moving constantly between India and Nepal because that's their uh, dispersal area. So basically all indication is good. India has almost kind of doubled its tiger numbers anyway. So Nepal is the one that's as officially, we would like to double the number. So the progress is good. 
At the same time, where the target numbers are indicating good growth, and everywhere that the other indicators are also challenging indicators. Like we in the this year, this year, I mean, during the COVID, we lost three tigers to poachers, three tigers to road kills, and uh, the nine people have been unfortunately nine people lost their lives to tigers. And I think these are uh, uh, very challenging times because when you have in conservation, you have a growing numbers, you feel happy about it, uh, and you are meeting the global target. It's a target set by Nepal government to double as part of the global doubling numbers. But then you feel really challenged, challenged by the conflict it's bringing to people, uh, uh, losing lives, losing livestock, losing uh, all kind of a challenges you need to work with it. So it's kind of a are very encouraging, but at the end, very challenging. So we've got to walk in the middle to meet the challenges while continuing to grow. And I think the most important, the progress is being made because we had a, a prime, our prime minister is the chair of the National Tiger Coordination Committee. So under that, so we have political will. Then there's a, under the ministry, there's a, all the security forces in charges and the, all the key agencies are there. And we are fortunate to be in the committee member. And because of that, and then the global community is supporting uh, security agencies, and most importantly, communities on the ground and youth on the ground. Uh, I mean, that's where threats are directly, but still people are so much supportive of it. And that's why I see a good feature that Tigers, uh, uh, we will be doubling it, uh, I'm sure, hopefully. <laughs> that's why I'm, always I have my hopeful. And at the same time, I do that, then it's again a challenge to maintain that number. And I think we, without working all together, it's not going to be possible. The poaching is such an, such an heightened uh, everywhere. So then the, the poaching because the trade, and we call it when buying stops, killing stops. And the market is always there in terms of trade. Once the trade is there, the poaching is continuing. So we have a good positive, but lots of challenges to overcome and continue to work on it. <clears throat> We will definitely be touching on the challenges in a bit, but um, firstly, we would like to um, highlight that Nepal gained international praise for the increased number of tigers under your leadership. However, methods used in the global south are often overlooked by some countries in the global north. As much as we learn from the global north countries, do you think there is equal opportunity for these countries to learn from us and other countries in the global south? I think uh, plenty of things you can learn from now from the South. It early, it was so much of a, in terms of technology, in terms of knowledge, in terms of a process and the approaches, a lot was learned from the global uh, North by the South. But now the, uh, the uh, besides some of the technological advancement is still continue to happen in the global uh, North in terms of even these cats, we want to do a GPS radio collar to really find the global positioning of the tigers. We want to have a special drugs to sedate those things. It still continue to come from the global uh, north. While doing so, but actually the, the protecting species, how it can be done under the sea of people, under the sea of land use, under lots of challenges, and technically, how are you going to deal with it? How can you apply the technical technicality of those technologies? And how you can actually achieve a conservation result is something uh, a lot can be learned from Global South. And that's already happening. It's not only a Global South and North, uh, between South and South. 
for instance, uh, how Nepal is actually uh, nearing towards doubling Tiger numbers, how we have done our work in a community, in a political commitment front, in the trade front, in a in a poaching front, in, a, in a, all the community front. So the and, and uh, these all are learning lab, a live learning center mm-hmm. uh, for the global uh, north. And then even more importantly, well, it's a conservation dream to have a zero rhino poaching. And we have achieved in six occasions. And this is something everyone comes to learn from here. Even Chinese came here to learn from us, how is the conservation is working in participatory conservation. Lots of our learnings were replicated in, South, uh, in, in Africa and then continue to exchange with uh, Latin America. And also the science, how it's being done, so much uh, in terms of approach, in terms of doing a real work, and more importantly, a community engagement in a, part, in a participatory conservation is a lot of learning is being done from the, our part of the world to the global north. Previously, Nepal has been able to achieve zero poaching of one of its flagship species, rhinos. Um, and we've heard there have been progress regarding elephants and tigers as well. We would love to hear how Nepal was able to achieve zero poaching of rhinos. I think we are making progress in every front. Um, besides, just to give you an overall context, besides Nepal is still, uh, Nepal has been a uh, chair of the least developing countries. Nepal is uh, one of the most vulnerable in terms of climate risk index. Uh, and then we have political instability 10 years, and then political making constitution 10 years. It's still political instability. And still we have, a, and now we had a blockade, we had an earthquake, and now we have again this uh, pandemic. With the still for some political instability. Having all of that last 25 years, in 25 years, we have done a lot. Our forest cover increased. Our snow leopards in the mountains are doing good. Our tiger numbers are doing good. Our rhinos, we have achieved zero poaching. And our elephants are doing good. Now, of course, there are lots of challenges with that. Why we have been able to do that? I think as I was saying, five major indicators. The most important thing is you need to have a political commitment. It's a must. Otherwise, it's very hard to protect. And that we have a, a committee under the prime minister. And that has got a huge political will and political support. Even the prime minister earlier actually uh, had a Nepal made an additional investment in tiger conservation. World Bank actually through Nepal government actually made an additional advancement. The, the Nepal government also made an additional investment in snow leopard conservation. So I think there's political will is the number one. Number two, the army, and the national parks are fully committed in the parks to control poaching. Mm. See, without poaching, control is pretty hard. Then there's outside Nepal police is fully committed in controlling trade. Mm. Then you have border police force who are fully committed to actually control trade in the, along the border side. I think these are major important part of it. Then I would say the most ingredient, important ingredient is the communities who are living with the wildlife are very positive about it. And they have explored, they can increase wildlife, you can do a tourism homestays, wildlife tourism. And then Nepal last year, when we talked about the must visit countries list, and Nepal was appeared among the top countries because of the tigers in birthday. They say, you go to Nepal, we go to Nepal to see tigers. They didn't say we go to see Nepal, Mount Everest or Lumbini, all that. They said we go to Nepal to see Tiger. So that's their community along with youth engagement is pretty good. And then finally, I would say international community is also fully supporting every sector, 
by technology, by approaches, by knowledge, and anything government needs. Uh, some sometimes government system takes a while to take it out. Where the uh, the conservation community and civil societies can move much more quicker. So it's actually very much a complementary capacities and skill sets and investment can bring in together. That's why institutions like WWF are really working under the leadership of government together with the community to make it happen. I think these are five major elements that made Nepal to achieve zero poaching, which is a dream of every country or any conservationist in the world, I could say, and Nepal has made it and no one has done it yet. So you did like um, touch on the subject of challenges earlier. So um, this question will be... So although there have been prime successes, and you mentioned it as well, it was very disheartening to see during the COVID-19 pandemic, four rhinos were poached. After this, there have further been reports of increased wildlife poaching and increased deforestation in several parts of the country. And today I was just reading the news that uh, forest wildfires are spreading um, in multiple districts in Nepal. So what do you think caused this to happen and how do you like how do you feel about this do you think it's possible to get on track after this event i think since you have a three questions together i will answer one by one the first thing is what pandemic has done in terms of pausing during the pandemic everyone was so much on the pandemic to control but having said that our public staff and, and the protections were always in the field and I'm very pleased to inform you that we actually were able to uh, support our partners on the ground, at least PPE, sanitizer, and masks to, do, to go with it because they need to work with it in a 24 hours in a service. It's easy to say. It's much, much harder to do. And because of that, the people have limited resources. People from India, lots of thousands and thousands ago came back. And we have lots of places, people have very limited resources and tourism got totally hurt. Still tourism is not moving. So because the people need to get into the past to have some uh, resources. And then also it led to uh, a contributed to poaching, which has been reported in different, in the even mountains like a musk deer and other species and, and so forth. And of course, the foreign energy have reported. And these are, uh, are the... Uh, unfortunate uh, events that is uh, the pandemic has actually had uh, brought in in terms of pressure on national resources. People need to enter to park. We have seen like a, uh, two, three times more people entering to the entering park during the pandemic than it used to because there are limited resources to access. So that is part of the challenge, but yet it didn't go that far. We are talking four rhinos. Huh? One time we lost uh, 37 rhinos in one year, 36, 37. But this year, only, not only the poaching rhinos, but also lots of rhinos. Now you have reported a death being reported. The flooding has got uh, some challenges. These are different challenges. So I think it, we have actually now a more uh, getting back to track. Uh, and I think I'm sure that conservation is going to get back to track because the commitment remains there. And people are, are committed to remain there. And Nepal is one of the feature in our uh, tourism industry, whether it's a domestic or international, is part of a part of wildlife and part of a nature, nature-based tourism. And because of that, they, that's the potential and asset to be protected. Everyone's very aware of it, from total top business people to the people in the ground who are doing homestays and a very small scale. Everyone's very aware of it. So I don't see it's not going to be a, a challenge. 
And also people living in a buffer zone and parks, we are the one of the first countries to share 50% revenue of tourism with local community, national park shares of that. And that's also there. The second part of your question is, what is happening with wildfires? This uh, normally this season, the, uh, this, uh, this particular season, there are lots of fire happens. The people set fires. Sometimes the fire happens accidentally and it gets caught. And this time it's actually worse because we have a pollution coming all the from the cross border from the Indian side of it. And there were lots of fire, uh, uh, wildfires are taking place. And because of that, the pollution has gone so bad. And the most of the problem now is because we didn't have a rain this winter. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the climatic patterns are really doing to us because there's a prolonged drought. Right. We didn't have enough rain. And we don't have enough rain. And, the, and then everything's so dry. And even you say in the national parks, we set a fire. But right. then fire doesn't get caught as much as it gets caught now. And then now because there's so much dry, the fire it has gone much more wilder and has been really caught too much. And that's why you have so much smoke uh, as a totally blanketed and so unfortunately so the the our the uh, pollution level has gone by uh, uh, beyond our uh, uh, the the requirement or something we can say uh, standards there's so much and so we, get, we are getting really uh, governments recommending everyone to stay at home so it's very dangerous to get out and so i think a few things are not happening the wildfire i think the uh, if you don't get a rain Still, we're going to get some problem because the the fire wildfire season is not stopped, and the later part again normally they burn all the agriculture field. And for you, know, I don't know how much you remember early days when you have a rice, rice was cut by a hand, so you go down below to cut it. Now they use a muscle machine, and so it gets cut, gets cut from the so there's a huge stack left behind, and that gets burned, right. and there's again it's it's again it's a smoke. So the whole thing gets burned and it's all about the smoke. And then we burn everything, basically, from plastic waste to every waste is being burned. And even industries like cement factories, brick factories, all these are polluting. So all of this combination, normally the rain helps to slow down. The rain helps to not bring it down. If you are regular rain, it, uh, so that's not happening. So this is a scary part of the climatic conditions being changed. So prolonged droughts are not only bad for the crops, but also is bad for the health. So basically, if you look at everything, it's integrated. Uh, and uh, no one has talked about a winter crop failures, but now we're also failing winter crop. And that's also very difficult, which is not being talked. Um, so moving on, we noticed on World Wildlife Day this year on March 3rd, for the first time in its 60-year history, WWF mm. decided to remove the panda from its logo for the day. What was the purpose and the motivation behind this? It was uh, a very much, now there's two, two sets of coin. One set of coin is that we are losing a species, a species day by day. Right. And that's why the last 50 years, we, when we started Living Planet Index, with 200 scientists from the WWF, Geological Society of London, we all sit together to measure the health of the planet. And every second you bring a report out and getting going down and down and down. So last year, last report was at 82% in the freshwater. This time, 84% of the freshwater aquatic species are gone. And that means we're losing every day. And that's the indication that we're losing species every day. And then the next side, wow, the panda is such a powerful brand, which we have. If you go, the panda's gone. Think about it. Our institution called panda without pandas in the wild. So let people imagine. 
if all these species were so close to your heart, so important for ecosystem to sustain, so important for ecological services to provide, if they are gone, the thing, what is going to happen? So make people feel, is there you're going to feel about it? Wow, no, it's gone. Mm-hmm. And that's something we really would like to, people feel about it. And I hope it has done its job. Yeah, that I think that that was a very great message. And World Wildlife Fund is such a renowned organization throughout the world. And when people think of World Wildlife Fund, you know, the image of a panda is automatically associated. So to see a logo without the panda, I think that was really a good message to convey to the world. So I would like to ask you, Dr. Gurung, what has been the reaction of your community in your conservation efforts? Community reaction to our conservation effort uh, has been, uh, in early date, is a very challenging. They all thought conservation means too much restrictions and limitations of using resources. Uh, they have been using their own, protecting their resources. They've been using their resources. They thought now it's, we have a legal system to put people in jail, all kind of a thing, you know. So, and then some parks you have you have a, uh, enforcement agencies coming on. So there's lots of skepticism. There are lots of uh, people feel uneasy and uncomfortable about in terms of formalized protection system where so many restrictions put into it. And slowly, slowly now people are getting more positive about it. Uh, conservation is not for those who are protecting it. Conservation for those people who are with it. And there's their own resources. And now, more importantly, our community is getting uh, more uh, uh, positive towards it because, because the conservation does two things. A, the loss of our projects are done by you know, because of the conservation. Like you look to our conservation, you know, whether it was a conservation or not. After the conservation, there were now more than 200 uh, of the poorest girls got to school. They have a said uh, each mother group, which is a 35 women group, which is called mothers group. They have their own funding to manage scholarships, give a loan. They have a insurance. They have a, their lifestyle insurance scheme being set it up. So it's a conservation brings the resources to improve their health, their water systems, their education system, their awareness system. All these are very much appreciated, and and jobs being created. On the other side, more important, they see the conservation actually uh, the conserve the resources and promotes some of the sustainability of the resources. So they have a, uh, the tourism, uh, whether the tourism, even hydropower, now people can talk about it. We need to have a land cover and land protection of uh, natural resources. Otherwise, you have a hydropower downstream and you have one flood upstream. It's very difficult. So people begin to see more and more the benefit of conservation bringing in, in terms of uh, uh, external support, in terms of government's internal investment. At the same time, it's in a, in a in our tourism, economic activities, the hydropower, all kinds of different activities coming in. Uh, so people have become more and more supportive of it because in outside, is so many restrictions the same. Whether you can kill a chicken, you, you poach a tiger outside protected area or inside a protected area, the, the law is the same. Right. But inside the protected area system, you have a system in place. You have an army protection system. You have a national parks people. So it's much more closer to, 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 to protect it and manage it. You know? So it's okay. still... Uh, there are a bit of uh, uh, challenges. People feel a bit uneasy because their their resources, traditional use utilization pattern of resources have been some restrictions brought in by conservation. Mm-hmm. 
So it's a kind of a in the middle. But I would say now moving towards more of a uh, more conservation, people are becoming becoming more of a, a supportive of conservation uh, in in a general because they begin to see the importance of protecting watersheds, protecting forests, protecting all those resources has got huge value in terms of their their uh, maintaining their own land culture intact and also bringing economic opportunities together. While we're still on this topic of community, community-based approaches have been really successful in Nepal. You talked about it a little earlier as well. Um, especially community-based forestry has been very um, um, has been very successful in Nepal. However, there still exists a communication gap between different stakeholders. In your opinion, what do you think should be done to increase community participation in the conservation sector of Nepal? Community forestry has been a very important part of Nepal's uh, forest cover uh, uh, recovery, uh, forest cover back to the increasing trend. And I think there, there was a vital role that believing in people, uh, believing in community who are the primarily stewards of resources, the concept has promoted so much, is doing well. Even in the protected systems, the buffer zones, they actually have a community forest, they are doing the same. So I think that level of a community forestry uh, has been a good. And now, so in the protected area systems, also moving towards more of a community participatory conservation. So now in the recent months, recent years, if you look at all the national park system, protected area systems, more and more areas have become a conservation areas. And conservation areas like Annapurna, Gauri Sangha, Kanjanjanga, all these are, uh, Kanjanjanga is the first conservation area in Nepal, now totally managed by local uh, local council, local communities under the government leadership in a, in a legal enforcement. And the Annapurna is conservation, the Manasulu conservation area, Gauri Sangha, all the more and more conservation areas coming because conservation areas actually uh, have brings more uh, space for community to participate directly in managing their natural resources together. Okay? So uh, the models are getting more and more improved in the future. Uh, the, our prime minister actually made a commitment in the, in the biodiversity summit a uh, few months back saying that Paul would like to maintain uh, uh, some form of conservation up to 30% of its land uh, dedicated to conservation. And that means also it's not a, I don't see that as, as becoming a protected area system, but rather a community are managing their own community forestry and in a larger sense, so that land becomes a better conserved and, and better utilized. And at the same time, it's bringing more benefit to the local communities as well in the direct on the, on the, in the, on the site, as well as the people uh, out of site, for instance, Protecting upper side of a forest has a huge benefit to the lower catchments because water is going to come down. If your flooding is going to come up, the flooding is going to come down. If water all gets dried up, <laughs> it dries up in the bottom. And then sometimes it doesn't dry on the top because there's no forest to cover either. So it's an it's a understanding, it's improving, and I, I think this is a, a future forward. Uh, we need to believe in people. We live in a people in a more important, most important part of this is that when you take our community, who is in community? Who is in charge of community? Is the elite that's capturing the whole uh, management system regime or is the, everyone is equally uh, participating in it? And community force is an interesting part where everyone is a member, but still there's an executive committee and normally there has got a, a new legal system has made it very clearly the women participation in terms from the gender perspective, but more need to be done in terms of inclusivity. No, all bringing together. So that is something we really need to work like indigenous communities. 
uh, people who are less fortunate to have resources and people not only uh, management is not done by elites and, and uh, people who are on the top uh, and, and the so-called who are in the forward uh, and so-called who are not, not being inclusive enough for the people who are called left behind in terms of, in terms of different uh, ethnicity. Uh, all of that needs to be looked into it. Right. But I think we have a future to move forward because Nepal is pretty much constitutionally, we talk about inclusive uh, regime in place and there's more need to be done because need to put in practice. It's easy to have a, a policy, it's easy to talk about, about it. It's sometimes even okay to have a constitution issue uh, in a constitution, but putting in a practice is the most difficult. Right. I mean, you two are a young women, no? We have a tau body system in the Western Nepal. And we talk, is it legally abolished? Is everything is where people destroy them, but it still practice prevails. Right. So it's the most important we need to now work in education, awareness, and making sure that we put the policy into practice and practice the one we need to hardest to think to get it done. And I think we need a more youth and educated youth really taking up a revolting role to push things forward. So because some of the traditions are not necessarily, uh, which is uh, acceptable for this 21st century world. And I think some of those need to change. Where some traditions need to be continued, it's an important part of our culture, a part of our system, where some of the, where the community forest is also a regime of a community. It's a tradition. We looked after our forest. And then it was nationalized. And then it went, went wrong. And then again, back to where traditionally community are managing it. That's where it got better. And I think there are lots of lessons you can learn and move forward. That's the only way to make a progress in life. Yeah, like from what you say, there are clearly some important gaps to fill. But evidently, human beings play a vital role in the ecosystem. So in, in many places around the world, due to the decrease in number of tourists, the ecosystems had to go through several changes. Studies even showed that human presence was actually a strategic measure in guarding wildlife. We saw a decrease in the number of tourists visiting national parks during COVID-19. Has this impacted the forest ecosystem in Nepal? I think the COVID was a very short few months, I would say. Uh, no, I mean, you could talk about like five, six, seven months. I mean, that's a good breathing for nature. But in the longer run, humans have always shaped the natural landscape. And that is important to shape it. Uh, for it's very clear um, uh, area is now you need to have a grass to be uh, eaten by the uh, wildlife, eaten by the uh, domestic in the, in the mountains. So you have varieties of grass continue to grow. The varieties of plants continue to flourish. If your agricultural sector is one of the most, uh, one of the most uh, biodiversity area because that's why varieties of crops are gonna come, varieties of plants being done. So you have varieties of diverse uh, the insects and diverse fertilizers gonna come. So I think it's an important uh, human interjection. The problem what we have done now, I would not say problem. The challenge is we are using exploiting beyond its carrying capacity, and that's the problem. For instance, rivers also need uh, uh, humans are using rivers, and rivers are actually being used. If you pollute too much beyond its repair, that's the challenge. So for, I think I would not say during the COVID, uh, for nature in many places, it was a breathing space for nature, where the wildlife came back to the one, the, the dolphins came to the shore, the deer is running on the road. So it was more of a natural, nature is taking its own course uh, with uncontrolled. What COVID, you know what COVID did? 
we are the smartest of all in the world in terms of brain humans. So what happened? COVID made everyone free mm-hmm. and jailed all the human beings together. So no matter how, whether you are president or you are a, a president's uh, housekeeper, we are all being quarantined. Remember? So yeah. that is clearly shows nature has recovered itself uh, vibrantly while we were all put in jail. Yeah. So it's a clear indication that uh, nature can thrive, but of course with the human interaction. But the, the challenge today is humans have become too greedy to exploit more than what's supposed to be spro- uh, uh, nature should be used. Nature mm-hmm. should do, Mother Nature has given us a space to feed and we actually you'd exploited it. Right. Transitioning on to the next question, talking about humans and them exploiting nature. In a time where countries strive for economic growth, animal conservation is sometimes pushed to the side. Do you think economic growth and conservation can go hand in hand? For me as a conservationist, uh, it's not going hand in hand. We must go in hand. We don't have a choice. Basically, conservation is not a considered as a luxury. And many people think modern conservation is important as a colonialism. I would not say conservation is neither, explo- neither colonialism, neither is, is a luxury. It is a need. None of us will survive without having clean air. None of us are going to survive without having clean water to drink. And you cannot make neither water nor air. Can you do you? No one has made that and no one can make it. And if you can't make it and you mess up everything, what are you going to do with it? Right. So it's a, everything has to go hand in hand. Now we have to be more, much more smarter mm-hmm. to look after nature. So nature continue to feed us and sustain human beings on earth so we can thrive in the nature. Nature doesn't need us. Mm-hmm. Remember when we when the COVID was there, we didn't go and uh, go to the sea to call dolphins to come to the shore, did we? No, we didn't go to the deers to come to the roads, did we? They will look after themselves. What do we do? We need we need them. So unless well, like roads are very uh, smartly built, so it doesn't have erosion, it doesn't gonna it doesn't wash away. It will have animal crossings. It will have water crossings. Mm-hmm. Even gets a cli- under the climate, you have erratic rain. Mm-hmm. Erratic rain brings erratic floods, and so enough floods to cross other, so you don't get inundated, you don't get wash flooded. So all these are part of the game, larger game, and we don't have a choice. And I think we are slowly learning a lesson. Even Nepal, I'm very happy to report you that Nepal has now first time, two years, three years back, we had a first underpass for wildlife in Chiton Brandavar. There are four of them. Now the Asian Development Bank, World Bank, everyone, the government of road department, I'm going to, we are going to have a meeting uh, this week, at the end of this week. It is now we are talking about underpasses for wildlife. Right. Otherwise, they, they will not consider because the underpass means the extra cost. See? So now people are willing to talk about our extra cost because the wildlife needs to cross. Because if all wildlife is gone, if you're taking everything as out, then who's going to come to Chiton to see rhinos tiger? Right. Will the international community fly paying like two, three hundred thousand dollars? No, I would say, and come to Nepal to have a picnic. <laughs> no, they're not going to come on picnic. So you need to have wildlife. See, and wildlife is not only wildlife per se; it's the tourism, but also has ecological services. Mm-hmm. Our studio is so important. Whatever pollution is coming from our neighbor, neighboring country has to be uh, filtered around the Chure where the forest is. It's going to be a carbon sink. 
And in the Mahabharata, forest year has to sing it. And more and less and less we sing it, we're going to have more and more polluted. It's not only human health, it's going to be even uh, uh, melt our, our uh, glaciers faster. Because it's immediately going to get a black topping on the whatever is not being left, and that will be cleaned much more uh, quickly melted. So it's a huge implications there. And people are now realizing more and more it, and a bigger, much more bigger faith in the youth, which are much more ever. And, and, and these guys are going to do a better job because we don't have a choice. And now we have an understanding and some kind of a technology in terms of adaptations. And some uh, understanding are making uh, the places more uh, space, it's more green, clean, and rivers becoming much more less polluted. And I think these are the important factors that we don't have a choice. Uh, Simona, we don't have a choice. And uh, whether uh, people believe me or not as a conservationist, if they do, those who do not believe are they actually messing up the rest of the people's lives. And more importantly for the decision makers, if they don't believe in it, and that is the, uh, that, that is the, uh, it's actually core. Uh, I would say that's the biggest uh, uh, was mistake that one could, one could do and commit. Uh, to making sure that we are not doing, we are thinking not parallelly together. Nature is one side of a coin, development the other side of a coin. We need to make it complete, and that's the only way to you can live with nature. Um, you say that nature is one side of the coin, and development is the like another side of the coin, and I completely agree that they are like you know the how the saying goes: two sides of the same coin. They have to be yeah. together. Um, so yeah, Dr. Gurung, on that note, we have come to the end of our episode. Um, thank you so much for your time today. We're hopeful that along with us, our listeners are also inspired after hearing about your career in conservation as we try to navigate our own understanding of the climate crisis. Thank you. Thank you very much to young ladies. I'm very proud and happy to have, uh, to have spoken to you to far away from your own country, but still you are mindful of your own country and try to do much more bigger justice for the society and human beings and the nature together, then uh, that's something every youth should be strive for. And with that, doing for, and thank you for doing that. And you, I hope you'll continue to do so. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Namaskar. Namaskar. Namaskar.